This week on Writers Inc. And I have wondered, I've toyed with it occasionally, if I ever had like a deadline that I needed to hit, I, I could just buy a season ticket on the train for a week and just go back and forwards again and again and again. I haven't done that yet. I think they'd probably think I was nuts, but um, you know. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. How you doing today, J.D.? I'm doing wonderful. I, I've got half a bookcase behind me. I see that. Closer. Yeah, making progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I started building them over the weekend. And it's funny, this is actually the third bookcase I built in the house. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm like slowly changing my, my process and getting better and better at it. So like by the time I get the last one, I'll actually know what I'm doing. <laughs> this one was just a pain in the butt because I have a bunch of power outlets and stuff behind him and I wanted to keep it accessible. So like, you know, when you've got a board that's 10 feet long and four feet tall and like you're trying to figure out where to cut a hole for an outlet. Oh, right. You know, like, <laughs> that was a pain in the butt. Um, but it, but it's getting there. I'm, I'm getting closer. I'm just, I keep looking over this big pile of books that I have next to me in boxes and I'm like, I just really want to unpack everything and, <laughs> and have my office done. My wife's got an office of her own and she just finally got in there uh, yesterday, I think was her first day. Like she got her, her desk set up and uh, they just delivered a chair for her in there. So nice. I think tomorrow, tomorrow morning could be like the first day she actually writes in there. Uh, but it's slowly starting to feel like a, a home. Nice. Nice. You have a table saw? Uh, yeah, I've got everything, but the problem is it's all buried out in the garage and I've had so many contractors in and out of here that like half my tools have just completely vanished oh. um, or like parts of them have. So like on my table saw, you know, I, they, got, they come with those like little slides to help you, you maneuver the boards. Like somebody took that. Oh, so like I've got yeah. the saw, but I don't have that. And like, you can't just buy that part. Um, I forget what it's called, but like, I, I haven't been able to find it's like that. like that like little guide that runs in the groove. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a cheap little piece of metal, but like without that, you know, it's, it's really tough to make a straight cut. So like I'm noticing a lot, you know, like we've got a broom, but our dustpan is gone. You know, like silly, <laughs> silly little things like that. Um, yeah, but we're, we're getting closer to the finish line. We're, we're finally starting on the outside where we've got um, somebody building a, a like a rock wall and putting some granite steps in and things like that happening over the next um, couple of weeks. Nice. Um, so, yeah, because right now our front yard is just a complete overgrown mess. <laughs> Neighbor, neighbors are uh, standing out there waiting, like, you know, with their arms folded, just like waiting for you to, to clean it up. Yeah, well, New England property lines are very weird. Like, my, my driveway is actually part of the original road like we live on colonial lane and originally the road was supposed to go past our house and continue on and connect it to the uh, the next road over but at some point somebody decided no let's just turn it into a circle and they built a house at the end um, and they made like a cul-de-sac, which is where our house is now. And like, we bought this property and we bought the lot across the street from our driveway, but we don't actually own our driveway. That, that's actually town property, <laughs> um, which makes things really confusing because if I want to do anything that's even remotely close to my own driveway, I have to get permission from the town in order to do it. 
um, that we're, we're working on changing that because it just, it seems really silly. Um, yeah, I think they realize there's liability there. Like if somebody falls in my driveway, like they're going to come after the town instead of me, um, which, which is good for me, bad for them. But you know, like when I pointed that out, they're like, well, maybe we should start the paperwork to you know, change the ownership on that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, I, uh, I wanted to tell you, man, I got a new podcast going. <laughs> Oh yeah, because you needed more of those, yeah, right? Right, right. I didn't have enough. <laughs> uh, total passion project. Uh, something I've been working on for about a year with uh, an old bandmate of mine. We wanted to do a rock and roll history podcast and do it uh, sort of in a very storytelling narrative. And uh, long story short, we've been working on it for about a year. And then uh, recently, I decided to do like little after show episodes where I talk about like the the topics that were covered in the main episodes. And what was really cool is my seventeen year old son. Uh, joined me for that and was kind of turned the tables on me, was interviewing me ab about the episodes. And it just, it turned out so well. And uh, we're both really proud of it. So I'll have a link in the show notes. It's called Consequences of Rock. And if anyone's interested in uh, rock and roll history and sort of uh, defining moments to kind of change things, uh, check it out. It should be fun. That sounds cool. I, I, I love music. I love those. Are, are you interviewing the bands and stuff on? on I wish. Or? No, like uh, yeah. what, what we did is we were, um, I did like all the research at the uh, Rock and Roll Archives here in Cleveland. And then uh, I wrote it out. So, you know, it, it's a narrate. It's, it's a performance more so than, than a, a conversation. And uh, I was looking for very specific moments in rock history. So example, the first episode is about uh, the tragedy at Altamont at the Rolling Stones concert in 1969. So if listeners aren't aware, uh, the Hells Angels were um, technically doing security for the Rolling Stones show, and they ended up stabbing a, a young African-American man. Uh, and it, it turned out to be quite a disaster. And it, it was it. Uh, there's a whole documentary on it called Gimme Shelter. So I went in and I researched that exact moment and who was involved and how, how it happened. And those are the kind of stories we're telling. Well, that sounds cool. Um, yeah, I, Hell's Angels, they, they did a lot of security, right? Back in the day, like for, for rock bands and concerts. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, they, they weren't, it wasn't like it is today. They weren't contracted or they, you know, they were basically doing it for like beer <laughs> or drugs, <laughs> you know? Um, and what happened at Altamont was, uh, they just beat on a lot of people like they, they, you know, they were all drugged out and spaced out and they were taking pull cues and, and bars and they were just beating people. So it's not security in the way we think about it, but yeah, they, they were involved in a lot of concerts back in the day. Well, that's fascinating stuff for sure. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put a link in the in notes. Anyone wants to check it out. I got some cool mail this week. First of all, it's Dean Koontz's birthday. So he's 75 oh, today. Happy birthday, Dean. Um, but I, I got a, a care package from him and he, he sent me his last book and he, he personalized it and he sent me his next book, which he also personalized, nice. which is very cool. But my favorite part of getting these little care packages from him is his newsletter. Yes. I, I, I don't know why, but like, it's just, it's, it's an old school paper newsletter. He prints it in color, you know, it's pages just folded and just kind of, he stuffs it in the box with, with everything. Um, but it's, it's just really neat to see somebody still doing that. Um, and I was just going through it and like, he's got, um, there's a, a spot at the end he calls odds and ends, yes. um, where he just kind of throws random thoughts out there and it could be anything from what they had to dinner to, you know, to something happening around his neighborhood or dog um, related. He, he likes his yeah. dogs, right? <laughs> oh, well, his dogs, they're, they're parts of the family yeah. for sure. 
Um, but like, he's got a couple of tidbits in there for, for his firing writers, which, you know, are, are always my favorite to look at. And he points out some stuff that, you know, I, I, I never really paid much attention to, but like, I, I definitely caught it back in the book doctor days. Um, you know, the first one is like, he tries to avoid dialogue tags, you know, whenever possible, which is, you know, what kind of a give me. Um, and, and in today's world with, with audiobooks taking off as much as they are, like dialogue tags tend to be really annoying. Like when you're listening yeah. to an audio book and, you know, even said, you know, he said, she said, Bob said, Brian said, Sue and said like it gets really old very fast um and and his writing is really clean like he's he's learned how to, to work those out um but one of the ones that got me that i've never really seen in like a you know a book on craft or anything before i'm just going to read it to you um he, he says more unsolicited advice advice for young writers avoid treating body parts as though they're autonomous creatures and then he's got an example. Her eyes watched him intently. No, she watched him intently. Her eyes didn't have any, they don't have a brain. They don't have intentions. <laughs> um, you know, and that's something like, I see that all the time. You know, like he, he ends it with Mary's eyes flew around the room. Um, no, she may have swept the room with her gaze, but her eyes remained in the sockets. You know, and like, <laughs> Dean, you know, if you read anything by Dean or an interviewer, if you ever get to talk to the guy, he's extremely sarcastic. So it comes across in this, but like, these are extremely valid points. Yeah. Um, and, and I see it all the time, you know, and, and I do it too. And I, or I have done it like now, now that I've, it's been pointed out to me, like I'm purposely going to avoid it. Cause for all I know, he was reading one of my books when he, when he spotted some <laughs> of these things. Um, I really wish the guy would put out another book on craft because yeah. uh, I've got his last one and I think it came out in like 1968. Like it's, it's been oh, wow. a couple of years. Uh, but like my wife just read it and like 90% of it is still, you know, valid stuff, you know, because it's about the, the written word, you know, not, not necessarily the technology or the medium that we used to get it out there. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see him take the time to do it, but I mean, he's just, he's such a workaholic and he's just so into his fiction right now. I don't see him doing that, but you know, even if he were to just gather all these little odds and ends that he's got in his newsletter, newsletter and put them together i think it would be worthwhile for for aspiring authors to see so yeah anyway that's super really, cool really cool and i'm on that list so i'm, I'm hoping mine is in the mail literally in the mail <laughs> it probably is my so, eyes, happy birthday my eyes to... will be sweeping the mailbox to see if it's in sweet <laughs> as long as they find their way back to the eye socket yes it's okay <laughs> excellent well we got uh quite a guest today don't we yeah, we have Mark Dawson on. I, I've got no idea how we roped him into coming on the show, but I've, I've been listening to, to his um, podcast for a couple of years now, I guess about three, four years at least, um, and just always full of, of information and just cutting edge stuff. Like he's always, you know, one step ahead of where the, the rest of us, you know, tend, tend to be. Um, and I, I love it. I mean, it's one of my favorites. I've, I've only got two or three podcasts at this point that I listen to. Um, well, I'm going to have to add one more about music, I guess, after today. Uh, but, you know, I've kind of whittled it down, but his, his is definitely a staple. And when I see that new episode hit up, I'm, I listen right away. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, we kind of got shamed into it when we had uh, James on first. <laughs> that's that's mark's fault yeah <laughs> excellent well i'm really looking forward to the conversation i've been following mark's work since he kind of came onto the scene too so this should be a fun talk well you know the other thing that doesn't get talked about a whole lot is a lot of the marketing people on the traditional sides the ones that work for those those top five publishers they're listening to mark too yes you know, and, and they're, they're not going to bring it up in a conversation, but I, trust me, they are. I mean, it, initially when this, this whole self-publishing thing came out, you know, the, those people were like, you know, they tried to ignore it, you know, like, oh, that's just going to go away. It's a vanity thing. And um, then they started taking a closer look at what was actually working on the, on the indie publishing side and trying to incorporate some of those things. And now it's a, a serious part of every conversation the marketing people have because, you know, and I've mentioned this before, like I tend to see the large publishers as like a giant cruise ship and indie authors are like a little 
speedboat. You know, we can just kind of whip around the harbor and do circles around that that big boat, and we can we can make a turn a lot faster than they can. Um, but they're taking notice of that, so yeah, they're they're listening too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, what do you think? Should we get into it? Let's go, Mark Dawson. I'm really interested in knowing what you think is the best song to get women onto the dance floor. I have absolutely no idea. It's a long time since I've been anywhere near a dance floor, so I couldn't know the best ones to ask. <laughs> oh, I thought you might have some uh, some DJ lore there you could share with us. Oh, God, no. That's a long time ago. I didn't have a DJ for, well, I don't know, 20 years probably. So that's, uh, no, ancient history. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. I wanted to, uh, I, I really wanted to talk to you about your website. I know, um, you know there's, there's so much I want, I want to ask you because uh, you, 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 you have so many things. But uh, markjdawson.com is fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to go with that combination of both form and function? Hmm. Um, okay. That, that was a long time ago since I, since we moved from one design to this new one. So, I mean, it, it was typically, um, I think I was looking for someone to make something a little bit um, smarter because one of the things about teaching other people how to do stuff is that people will often mimic you, which is absolutely fine. I have no problem with that at all. And I encourage it um, sometimes, but it was getting a little bit annoying to see um, everyone just you know, basically copying my website. So, I decided to change and to do something that would be a bit more difficult and or expensive to, to, to um, copy. So I, um, I looked around and I found I mean, Nine Inch Nails is one of my favorite bands. Uh, and I um, found the guys, the guys who make Trent's website are in, in the UK. So I contacted them. They typically do music. So they've done um, uh, Nine Inch Nails, um, Katy Perry, um, Oasis, you know, some, some fairly big um, bands and, and musicians. And I said to them, would you, would you fancy doing a, a website for an author? So um, we had a chat. We, we kind of agreed what it might look like, how much it might cost. And they went away and um, put it together again. And I was, you know, they, they still work for me today on that. We were doing some, we'll have a store on the site quite soon for signed copies and stuff like that. So it's, it's been, it's been a, a, a fruitful relationship between me and them. Oh, fantastic. I mean, I know with, if you, if you look at sort of the, the standard author website, if there's such a thing, there seem to be a lot of uh, leaks in those buckets, right? There, there are places on those pages where authors are sending potential readers out to other places, whereas yours seems to, to sort of pull them in. Was that an intentional decision? Yeah, I, I like, I'm fairly clean and tidy um, when I'm just generally, I mean, my office is ridiculously tidy and, and I, I try to I've kind of have that more of a minimalist ethos when I'm looking at things like websites. And I don't want, my, my view is I have a few things I want the website to achieve and I don't want to confuse the reader too much by giving them too much to do. So there aren't you know links to dozens and dozens of sub pages and stuff like that. It's all pretty streamlined. It's basically come in, give me your email address. That's the main function. And then that's why you'll see a pop-up will appear on the very first page um, and then it will also appear subsequently on, on, on other pages to give you the chance to get some free books to join my mailing list because that's that's still the most important thing that we can do as authors in that regard anyway um, and, um, and the other purpose is to sell books I, mean, I suppose the whole purpose is to sell books but there's just different ways to do it I can sell you a book by, by way of an email I'll probably sell you more than one book that way um, or if you're if you're just browsing and you want to see the series, it's a good place to see the chronology. I often get people asking, you know, how should I read these books? There's quite a lot of them now. 
which path do I follow? And I can send them to the website and tell them to basically follow that path. Um, and, and, you know, it's worked, it's worked pretty well. Yeah, I, I know that your your friend Nick Stevenson was really big on sort of the the reader magnet and squeeze pages, and it, it's not it's not a traditional squeeze page, but it really does force the attention to uh, taking your free offer and, and getting on the list, and that seems to be an approach you've really mastered over the years. Yeah, so I mean, squeeze page is just basically no option to do other than maybe you should probably have one way off it rather than close the browser down, but nothing distracting. Um, no kind of bells and whistles, just this is what you're here to do, do it and leave. Now, I do have pages like that, but they're not ones that you would find from the site. They're kind of sub URLs that I can use in an, in an ad, for example. So I might have an ad on Facebook directing to a squeeze page where I know all they want to do is that they've clicked because they want to find out more about the offer and hopefully they want to sign up for it. So why would I want them to go to that page and then they go and, you know, do something else, read a blog post, or even buy a book. I want them to. I want them to give me their email, email address, and that's what they want to do. So making that nice and simple. So I, I do have pages like that. Um, the general ethos in the main site is to is to minimise the amount of shiny distractions and to get them to take the take the actions that I want them to take. Yeah, fabulous. We we certainly have many listeners who are uh, either inexperienced or haven't haven't published much and. I, I love, I've heard you tell the story before. I'm wondering if you could share with us just sort of uh, how and, and specifically where you drafted your early novels. I think that's an inspirational story. Well, so the, um, I mean, the, the first books I, I self-published, I was traditionally published originally. The first books I self-published, I wrote over the course of a couple of years. And there was two books, which is ridiculously, ridiculously slow for me these days. But I, um, I wrote those just in cafes and places. But then... When I started publishing the Milton series, I immediately saw there was they were quite easy to write because the research was something I didn't need to travel to do. It was all basically internet research, which was easy. And um, I was getting a lot of sales quite early on, much more than I'd had before, uh, and getting um, contact from readers, again, more than I'd ever had before. So I could see that this was something that had had an audience. I just had to to find it, grow it, and then continue to feed it content. And because I was, I think I was being buffeted by those twin inspirations of, of money from Bezos and um, and acclaim from from readers, which you know, money and acclaim is kind of that's what I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was I had a lot of enthusiasm. So I was I was living in Salisbury at the time, which is where I am now, and I would travel to London where I, I was working. And it's 90 minutes on the train there and 90 minutes on the way back. So it was, it's the, I've never ever found uh, a better place. And I have a nice office here now. I've got an office at home, but I've never found a place that I have been as productive in for the pure purpose of writing as I was on that train. Cause I had, um, I'd always get a seat, always get a table. I'd get the laptop out, buy a cup of coffee, put my headphones on, put some music on, drown out the distractions. And then I just lose myself in the story. And, and sometimes I'd find, I'd get to Waterloo 90 minutes later and I wanted the train to go for another half an hour because I was so into the into whatever I was writing. And that, you know, I wrote, I think in that year, which was 2014, I wrote, um, I wrote and published something like a million words. It was, it was just the kind of the most kind of the most concentrated burst of inspiration I've ever had. And I've never got anywhere near that again, even though I'm full-time now and I, I wasn't back then. Um, there are so many distractions now. Most of those are my own fault. 
like starting other businesses and stuff like that. But um, I've, I've never found that kind of pure creation um, quite as easy as I did on the train. Hmm. Have you um, have you gotten back on the train since to just kind yeah, of get yeah. that magic back? Uh, well, on that occasion, I'll travel to London and um, yeah, see my agent or publisher and you know, do stuff. Um, and I, I will always, I'll always have my laptop with me to, to do that. And I have wondered, I've toyed with it occasionally. If I ever had like a deadline that I needed to hit, I, I could just buy a season ticket on the train for a week and just go back and forwards again and again and again. <laughs> I haven't done that yet. I think they'd probably think I was nuts. But, um, you know, <laughs> one day. Well, is it... Was it more of a commuter train, or I mean, you said a table that that sounds. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's not a you know a big table, but that would seem to be a little more conducive to getting your work done as opposed to putting your laptop on your on your lap. Yeah, yeah. It's a, in, in British trains. Um, I can't. It's a long time since I've been on an Amtrak, but a British train would typically have um, several tables in the carriage, like a four seater, so you have you'd be facing two other people. And yeah, easily big enough to but everyone have a laptop out. You occasionally have kind of laptop walls where your lid is banging against their lid. And you'll kind of passive aggressively push it backwards. Um, I'm I'm well used. I'm a veteran of those skirmishes, but um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm partial to trains myself. I I, I know that there's something magical about it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it's it's beyond the obvious. You know, you're not you're not in a car, so you're not responsible for paying attention. But even still, it's it's different even than a plane, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, you can. Um, I, I have traveled around the states on Amtrak before when I was between university and law school, and it is it's just a very nice way to see the country. Because um, otherwise, if you're on a plane, you're just basically seeing airport clouds, airport, and that's that's no way to. You know, I, I've I've stopped in places um, in the states where the fact that I, I have an English accent is a real bonus. <laughs> you know, where I've gone into a diner and they'd be like, "Will you say something for me?" Because you've got a really cool accent. <laughs> so no, it's it's like it's a really good way to see it, see a country properly. Uh, whereas driving, I suppose driving is is, is similar, but air, airport travel and airplanes certainly not uh, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, writing isn't the only thing you do. You mentioned you have um, a, a number of other business ventures and self-publishing formula has really become a staple for, for people in the industry, in the circles. And you and James have done an incredible job of building that. And uh, in, the, in the relatively recent past, you started the SPF Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what that does? Yeah, so that's, I mean, SPF, the, the, the company has done really well and we're, we're very um, grateful for the, the, you know, the reputation that we've built and, the, and the, the students that have taken our courses. And we wanted to give a little bit back. Um, and also, I'm fairly well connected now in the industry, so I can reach out to other people and say, would you like to do this too? So um, what we decided to do was that we know that the courses are, are not cheap um, and... Um, and ads aren't cheap either. And, and if you want to do, if you want to publish properly, um, covers aren't cheap and editing isn't cheap. So there, there is, there is always, I mean, it's a, for, for an industry, a bar to entry, it's pretty low in terms of the capital required, but there is still capital required. Not everyone will have that. So um, what we did was originally with the guys from Reedsy, we, we set up the foundation and we basically um, picked, originally it was four writers who applied um, and we have some requirements they need to, you know, not be in a position where they could afford these things themselves. So there's a kind of an income test. There's a 
I don't want to call it a quality test, but I will look, we will look at books and think which ones do we think commercially are the most viable. Um, and we want to give those books a chance. Um, and so we, we, Ricardo and I would, would pick, we'd rank the entrants. We had a, we've had a few in the first year anyway. Um, and we would then pick four and they would get, I think it's $2,500 um, we, we gave them and, and all the SPF courses and, and, and support they can uh, i can mentor them as well so try and give them a good chance um subsequent to that we've um we've added some sponsors so we, it's um the guys from written word media so free booksy bargain booksy they're on board a few authors um mark recklow writes nonfiction. lucy score a big selling romance writer these guys have all taken the spf courses and, and that they credit a lot of their success to the fact that they can market better now a couple of other um, authors on board as well, and, my, and I'm probably missing a few, which you know, I apologise. But, but there are about eight, I think, sponsors now, um, and that that's meant that we we haven't decided exactly what we're going to do yet. We may increase the amount of money that we give to the recipients, or we might just have more recipients. Don't know, don't know yet. But my wife Lucy runs that, so she's in charge of um, collecting the applications um, and. And passing them, winning, winning them down a little bit, and then passing them to the judges to decide which ones we go for. But I think this year we've had we've had a lot of applications, a couple of hundred probably. Um, mm. But it's it's lovely to be able to you know make it a little easier for people to publish. And we've had a few a few authors. Um, uh, name eludes me now, but we had one of on the podcasts not long ago who's doing really really well now. Retired her husband, you know, kind of making a full time living from her books, which is kind of that's what we wanted to achieve. Yeah, those are great stories, and and it's uh it's it's a wonderful way to give back. Uh, I know that um, it would have been probably very easy for you to just focus on on your fiction writing and and put all of your efforts into your own creative outputs. So, uh, why the decision to go to start SPF in the first place? Uh, we mentioned Nick, and it was uh, I saw Nick had his first course out and, and he, he did quite well. He told me how well he did. And I thought, Hmm, I think I'm quite competitive. I, thought, I, could <laughs> do, I could do that too. So we, um, we, we, I spoke to James and John who, um, I've known for 15 years, probably we used to work together. Um, and, um, they have a video production background They're You know, they're also prepared to do the technical stuff that I just don't have the aptitude for, or really the time for, um, all the interest in, to be honest. So they, they do the stuff that I, I can't or won't do. Um, and and we're a pretty good team. And you know, we, we, we launched the first the first course about five years ago, and it did it did better than Nick did. So that was uh, one there to me. <laughs> um, and since then, yeah, we've we've um, we, it's gone amazing. We very actually yesterday we closed the um, most recent launch of the Ads for Authors course, and we had about twelve hundred authors join, which is is you know that's our best ever launch, which is you know. It's fabulous. So we're we're very pleased about that. And and of course my focus now is making sure that those authors who have taken the course get the exactly what they want and the support they need to to start advertising successfully. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about your early days on the train. What does your writing schedule look like now? Do you do you have a certain time of the day, certain days of the week? What give us a sense of what your day to day looks like? Um, I only work five days a week, so I don't work at the weekends because I've got two kids. I mean, I might peck at things, but nothing substantial. Um, I will eat my, I usually take, if they're at school, so they've only just gone back to school because of lockdown here, but um, I, I'll usually take the kids to school. Um, if I'm working here in the office, I'll be here for nine o'clock. I'll then work 
nine till twelve, usually um, on, on on fiction. Um, that tends to be when I'm most productive. So I'll, I'll press on with with writing, either you know fresh stuff or editing. Um, I'll then go for a walk. So it's like it's thirty two degrees here today, so it's really warm. So I went for a walk at lunchtime just for you know five or six k just to clear my mind. Um, then come back and then I'll do other things in the afternoon. So it could be things like this. Uh, it could be um, answering email. I've got some contracts to check and sign. Um, deals I need to do. SPF. We're launching another company quite soon called Hello Books. We might have another thing coming up. So there's always other things. But I, I always, my, my first priority every day is to get some words down. Because um, at the end of the day, that is still, even with everything else, fiction is still thing I love the most and it's the most lucrative thing for me to do. So um, it has to be number one. Yeah, for sure. Both you and Hugh Howie have made some really innovative decisions uh, as hybrid authors or, or, or independent, depending on how you define it. Uh, what have you learned over the past few years about sort of licensing and the publishing world that might go beyond what the traditional indie would assume? Um, most, I mean, Hugh was quite lucky when he um, was able to get print deals for Wool. Um, there weren't many people doing that. I think Bella Andre might have done that as well. Um, there weren't many deals that way and they don't do them anymore. So it's always really, it's very, I find it very confusing why they would look at series. I mean, I've sold over 3 million books. I know that the books are good um, and I can say that objectively because they've sold 3 million copies and readers send me lovely emails and they get great reviews. So I know, you know I'm not, I'm not saying I'm kind of a prose genius, but I can, I can tell a story. Um, so it's always struck me as a bit odd that these are proven properties um, that have sold well in one format. They should sell well in other formats too. I mean, they sell, they sell well in audio as well. Now I can do that. Print is harder um, for lots of reasons, it's not impossible. Um, and my friend LJ Ross, who's a big um, indie in the UK, not so much in the US, but, but, making moves out there as well um she's she took the other decision and she's actually um work, working with she put a team together and she's printing and distributing her series into stores and supermarkets and and, and doing well now i i was i've been kind of sniffing around for a while for potential with my, my telling my agent look try and pitch these books to trad houses because they it shouldn't be it's not really a shot in the dark they should sell but no no one's interested I've got some theories why that is, but they weren't. But um, in the end, my agent said to me that I've got some interesting news. Um, the, there's a guy called Mark Smith, as an Aussie, um, who set up an imprint. He set up a few imprints over here, a few publishing houses. But his the most famous one was called Zaffer, um, and Zaffer were the uh, he he discovered Steve Larson basically. So the girl with the dragon tattoo, he discovered that book. I think was it Norwegian or Scandinavian anyway, and, and he translate had it translated sold it in English and obviously that sold millions and millions of copies. He, he's also published quite a lot of other books that are not quite as successful as that, but still exceptionally successful. And um, Mark told my agent that he, he'd found the Milton books. He loved them. He'd read all of them, um, which is lovely when I hear that, but he'd chewed through all 16 books and he wanted to work with me. Um, so we, we sat down, he, everything's on the table. Um, he originally wanted all rights. I said, well, you make me a, you know, if you pay me 10 million, you can have everything. Um, <laughs> he very reasonably wasn't going to do that. But in the end, we, we came to a, a, a joint venture whereby um, I put in the IP, so the stories. They put in the capital, so things like printing, distribution, editing, new covers, sales team, all that stuff. 
and um, and the books are now being um, put out first of all in hardback. So actually, as we record this today, is the is the publication day for the cleaners, so the first um, Milton book. So that should be um, in stores now, um, and then we're going to be publishing another one this year, and then three next year, three the year after that, and eventually, if they take off, the whole series will will be available in in print in brick and mortar stores, which is, is a bit different. And this opens up another market for me that otherwise I can't get it to. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and I think it's a, a good way to build to um, the last question I'd like to ask you to kind of close the conversation, which is. Um, you, you've been in this industry for a long time, uh, from the beginning, uh, you know, the beginnings of the, of the Kindle days. You've seen it grow. Uh, where do you think it's headed? Um, I, you know, I haven't actually been in it all that, all that long. I mean, I have been for, I've been doing it for about seven or eight years now, so I kind of missed the gold rush years. I missed the, the John Locks and the Amanda Hawkins. I kind of just missed, I just about caught the end of Hugh, Harry, and, and, and people like that. So I remember, you know, the old keyboards days when I would be kind of hoovering up um, the little nuggets of wisdom that would fall from their tables and thinking one day, wouldn't it be amazing if I could sell a fraction of the books that they're selling? So, um so I, yeah, I've seen it change. I mean, it's um, it's it's become much more competitive. Um, in, in those days, it was possible to put up a cover with a book with a poor cover, uh, just price it very very competitively, and then let Amazon market it. And you know, you would you know the John Locks of this world selling. Yeah, I think he was the first indie to sell a million. Um, that, there was no kind of he wasn't running Facebook ads or Amazon ads because you couldn't. So he, it was it was really. Organic algorithmic marketing, word of mouth, that kind of thing. So that those days have gone now. It is the kind of the the days of free organic visibility on the retailers? That's that's kind of ancient history now. So in, in order to to make a mark, you have to accept that there, you're going to have to learn to advertise. You're going to have to put out a very professional product. It's got to stand toe to toe. I have to compete with Lee Child's publisher to make sure that my book looks as good. As his book. Now, once once readers are in the book, then it's kind of down to me as a writer to hold their attention. But I've got to get get them to that point first of all. And I think the, the, the it's going to be, continue to go in that direction. I think it is going to be increasingly professional. Um, the requirement for advertising is going to become um, it's not a luxury now. It is a necessity, and I think it's going to continue that way. Um, but you know, who knows? I think there'll be some interesting deals coming down the track. We will start to see uh, enlightened publishers realizing that there's some great content out there published by indies. You know, um, I could I could list half a dozen now that would that I'm sure would sell very strongly in um, in brick and mortar stores. So you you might start to see things like that. Film deals I think are, are more likely to happen. People doing crossovers with video games. There's tons and tons of different ways that indies could exploit their content. Um, so you know, it's I think. It's challenging more so than it was back in the day, but it's it's still you know the most fun you can have with no trousers on, almost. <laughs> All right, Mark Dawson. Well, I, you know I have to mention this because everyone who knows me will know why. But I love the fact that he he did so much writing on the train. Uh, he he just wrote his you know commuting in and out of London writing on the train, setting up his table, putting on his earphones and utilizing that commute time. I thought that's brilliant. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's got to find that time, right? I mean, you can, you can try and squeeze out 20 or 30 minutes at home, but like, if you're really sitting on a train for 30 minutes or an hour for, for a commute like that, that that's perfect. Um, and it may not seem like it because you're surrounded by people. There's all this buzz happening around you, but you know, if you do, like, like you said, you know, you put on headphones, you, you isolate yourself, you know, you can tune out all of that noise and, and I've done it right. Writing on an airplane is, is very similar. Um, and the noise doesn't bother me so much, but it's, you know, it's those eyes, the people, you know, the person sitting next to you kind of glancing down at your keyboard like that. That's what tends to take me out of that. You know, my brain, my writer brain, you know, from the book back to present. Um, but you know, there, there's so much can be done and, and, you know, if you can squeeze an hour every day or two hours, that, that commute, um, you can easily knock out a novel in a year. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And I know that, you know, in the States, most, I shouldn't say most, a lot of commuting is done in cars and that, and that's, you know, you can't exactly write, work on your novel while you're driving, or maybe I should say you shouldn't be working on your novel while you're driving. <laughs> well, um, you, you can dictate it. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people that do that, you know, they use Dragon Naturally Speaking and they, they just, you know, talk into their phone. And uh, you know, if you can get that to work, I mean, that's from a word count standpoint, every single person I know that dictates a book, you know, they're, they're getting four, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 words a day right. um, by, by by doing that, but it, it takes, you know, a very skilled person. Like it, it's a complete shift in, in the entire model. I like, I personally need to see the words on the, the page, like the way they, they, they look is very important to me. Right. Um, and it, but you know, not everybody is like that. Um, I think we had talked about Kevin Anderson before. I mean, very prolific guy and, and he dictates everything. Um, there's a number of people out there that are like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things that he mentioned and I was kind of, uh, kind of slunk down in my chair a little bit, but, uh, he talked about not working on the weekends, and and I think I can safely say that's not something you and I can can lay claim to. Uh, I, I I have to. I mean, yeah. like writing writing is something I was doing for free for for my entire life. You know, it's it's my outlet. Like when I'm stressed out, that you know, if I go to my desk and I work on a book, it it de-stresses me. It, yeah. it calms me down. Um, I, I can guarantee, you know, today's Dean Koontz's birthday. I can guarantee he's sitting down on his computer and he's writing today. Um, I don't think he takes a day off all year. Um, you know, for, for some people it's, you know, it, it's that much of a, you know, it's like a nagging voice. We, we have to do it. Um, but you know, I get it too. And he's got a family and like, you have to learn to balance that. And especially when you work at home, you know, like I, you know, my daughter comes into my office four or five times a day, you know, like she just came in here and handed me the remote and asked me to put the TV on a certain show for, her. um, you know, those, those types of things happen and you have to learn to balance those. And when your office is right there at your house, you know, anybody that, that has worked from home knows this, it's very difficult to ring that quitting bell. You know, you can, you know, you get an idea for your book and you wander back in there and two hours go by. Um, or, you know, if you're working for another company and, you know, like you, you have to draw that line in the sand, like that, that room needs to be off limits. Um, so, you know, if, as long as he's getting what he needs to get done, done, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, if, if you can take two days off in a row, you know, more power to him. I, I personally don't write on Sundays. Um, you know, at that time is, is strictly for family. I, I go through my emails real quick and whatever marketing stuff I might have to do and look for anything important and, you know, try and get in and out of my office within 30 minutes or so. And then the rest of the day I, I give to family. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really, you know, situationally dependent on, especially family. You know, if you have commitments that include young children or pets or relatives or something, then, uh, then I think it's different. Like I know I worked, uh, I, I worked far less when my kids were younger and as my kids have gotten older and they need less of me and they don't want to see me as often, <laughs> you know, shouldn't a, you be working dad? Yeah. Right. Like go, go up in your attic. I don't want to see you. 
but yeah, I think that I think that's different. I think Mark's kids might be a little bit younger than mine, but like I, I and I think you'll see too as your daughter gets older and becomes more independent, you won't you won't feel the same pull that that you do when they're younger, and that that's everyone goes through that. I think that's natural. Yeah, and and I I think you got to give him some points just for for being there for his family like yeah. that. You know, being willing to put everything else aside and say, hey, no, I just want to spend you know a day or two with with my kids and my wife, and you know, enjoy some of the fruits of all this because you you can make a great living. Um, but if you know if you're working eighty hours a week, you know, twenty four seven is dedicated to you know the craft. You know, what's the point? You know, you've got to find that balance. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is you know Mark has been very savvy in negotiating rights and international distribution and, and making different deals. And, uh, I was wondering, do you think authors really need an agent to, to be able to leverage those kind of deals? Or do you think you can sort of educate yourself enough to do it on your own? Well, it depends on how much of it you want to do on your own. It, it's no different than publishing here in the States. Um, you know, like we'll take Germany for, for example. So, you know, Mark as he hired a translator, he got his books translated. Um, you know, he's, he's self-publishing them in German. He had to hire marketing people and people that could help him with copy for ads, you know, all, all in this foreign language like that. That's a ton of work to take that on. Um, now I've got traditional publishers in every, every you know, foreign country, um, you know, and, and I'm still involved, um, but mainly, you know, like a translator will email me and say, Hey, this sentence, you know, does this make sense? Um, you know, especially when you've got humor, like I've got a lot of, you know, like, like dark humor in my books and that doesn't necessarily translate oh, to a yeah. foreign language. Um, but my overall involvement isn't, isn't quite there, nowhere near the level that he's got to do. Um, but like right now I'm, I'm a bestseller in, um, my, my agent just emailed me yesterday with six wicked child. We're, we're on the bestseller list in Germany, the Netherlands and Spain. Nice. Um, Congrats, so, so man. yeah. All, yeah. So one of the things that a traditional agent will do is they go back to your, your back catalog and they go, well, okay, which books aren't in those countries yet? Because, you know, now's the time to strike. Um, so I get, when we had that conversation the other day, you know, I, I got to add a little something to it. I said, well, give them a ticking clock because, you know, if the Netherlands doesn't want to buy book X, you know, within a certain amount of time, I'm going to self-publish it in, the, in that language. Um, and for me, it's kind of an uphill battle because the thrillers are the ones that are hitting the bestseller list, not necessarily my, my novels that lean more towards horror. Um, and they don't want to muddy the waters on their side. They just want thriller after thriller after yeah. thriller after thriller. I know the audience will come over, you know, and bounce back and forth because I've seen it in the countries that are willing to do it, but a lot of them just aren't willing to take that risk. Um, so I don't know how they're going to react to that. Um, but the bottom line is I know I can do it. Like if I have to go the, the Mark Dawson route and, and pull all those different players and get the book translated and get it out there, I know I can get it done. Um, it's just right now, I don't want to put the time into it. Um, you know, from a payout standpoint, there's a huge difference. I'm sure he's making far more money you know, on, on that side than I am just because I've got so many different hands in the pot. Um, but you know, it's, it's all give or take. You've, you've got to weigh all those different things. Yeah. Excellent. So I, I, I love talking to Mark. He's just um, smart, articulate, uh, dry sense of humor. I just uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure our listeners got a lot of uh, great takeaways out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, his website too. I, I just wanted to touch on that. I mean, he's got a phenomenal website, and it's completely different from from every author's site. And yes. you pointed out that at the beginning of the interview, um, and he mentioned how he got that done. Uh, here in the states, almost every author I know uses one particular company to create their their website, and that company uses a template. You know, so every every site follows the same format. Um, so you know, he went outside the box a little bit and gave you know created something that that's different and it it stands out. You know that, that that's how you you separate yourselves from from everybody else. Yeah, I think he said it was the the people who did uh, Nine Inch Nails website. 
Yeah, and I think Katy Perry, and he mentioned mentioned a couple mm-hmm. others, but but music people. Yeah, you know, and again, I mean, you're selling a widget in the end, but you know, he, he didn't go to book people; he went to music people. Yeah, you know, that's 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 Dawson. That's what he does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, great chat. Um, who were uh, who's coming next week? Do you know? Next week we have Riley Sager. So this is a guy I've I've known for a while. Um, he, we we met at Thriller Fest a couple of times. Uh, he was a reporter, or a journalist for for a number of years, and and he just he got really lucky. He struck with his his, his first book um, as as Riley Sager, um, and I think he's on the third one now. I think it just came out or it's about to come out. Um, he's he's got a phenomenal career going right now, and yeah, the the writing is extremely sharp. But um, he's got you know he's got some horror stories in the background too. I mean, he he didn't you know he didn't launch, launch that first book as a bestseller. There there were a couple clunkers before that. Not necessarily because of him, but more, you know, the industry, like, you know, you, you need a perfect storm to create a bestseller. It's not just all, you, you have to have a perfect book. I think that that's a given, but a lot of other things have to line up as well. And in his case, the writing was always solid, um, but those other elements didn't line up and, and finally they did for him. And you know, I'm, I'm thrilled. It's always nice to see that, that happen for somebody. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. It's, it's going to be a, a fun chat. So Riley Sager's coming next week. Yes, sir. All right. So to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.